Father, we thank you that we have a beautiful fall day. Uh, God, even looking at the, uh, the changing of the seasons and being able to see your faithfulness written on just the weather outside, uh, God, I am thankful that we get to enjoy this weather and that that even points to your beauty and your majesty and your wisdom in creation. And so, Father, we thank you for that, and we thank you for the chance to be able to gather in here tonight that we might be able to look at how to interpret Scripture rightly and how to apply it to our lives. God, we pray that this would be a transformative night even for us as we consider um, the process by which we begin to apply the Scriptures to our lives. So we pray that you would help us do that tonight. And as is my custom, I just ask that you would pray for me and that as I am leading through um, our content tonight, that what I say would be clear, it would be beneficial, it would be helpful for us, and that it would uh, ultimately be in harmony with the gospel. So if you would, take a moment and pray that for me. God, I thank you for all that you have done for us individually. I thank you for what you have done for us corporately through your son. I pray that as we are looking at the scriptures tonight and looking at how to understand the meta narrative of the Bible, that we would see that it leads to your son. And God, I pray that everything that I say tonight about the meta narrative and applying scripture and genres of literature, I pray all those things would be beneficial, they would be clear for us, and that we would be able to use it in our lives even tonight. And so, God, we ask that you would be honored by the way that we seek to do this. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, um, not only just to help me uh, speak well, but also for us to comprehend well what it is that you have for us. And so, Father, I pray that you would be honored tonight and that we would be edified. And we ask all this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, this is how we start every week. We're going to look back at our schedule. We have knocked out... Um, Four of those first five topics. Tonight is the last night that we are in interpretive guidelines. Um, last week, we really spent some time talking about who is responsible for interpreting a text and who, or excuse me, who is responsible for um, creating the meaning of a text. We talked about uh, how we would have right interpretation and how big a deal that is. And then we talked about how the Holy Spirit is influential in that entire process. We are building on all of that from last week. So if you didn't listen to it, or if you weren't here last week, you can go listen to it online after the fact. Um, we can get you squared up there. I think we actually even have the video on uh, YouTube. So if you want to do that, you'll be good to go. Tonight, what we're going to be looking at is we're going to talk about the meta narrative, which is actually a really simple concept. It's just a good $5 word to describe something that we already all know. Then we're going to talk about how we apply the Bible to our lives, and then we're going to start talking about genre and how to identify the, the genre of literature we're in. Just so we know, we're in the fifth week there. Every week from 6 through 16 is us looking at an individual genre of literature. So we're going to end on that note of how to identify those genres, and then each week we're going to give you a genre, give you some clear characteristics of what that is, and then we're going to look at an example of how to actually interpret that. Yeah? So that's where we're heading. We cool with that? All right. So this is our customary uh, running start for the last two weeks. Um, the number one thing that I did keep up there from a couple weeks ago is that um, one of our core convictions about Scripture is that the Bible is a unified story. 
Um, that's going to be really, really key for us in our first point here tonight. Um, a couple other things from a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, was we have to hold to dual authorship. So, Sue Foote, who wrote the Bible? God and man, dual authorship. And then an extension of that, whenever we come to right interpretation and holding to the inerrancy of Scripture, that is a critical thing for us to hold on to. And then, like I mentioned last week, we talked about how the author is the ultimate determiner of the meaning of a text and that the Holy Spirit aids us in interpreting Scripture. Yeah? All right. That's our recap. Here's my question. First one to get us going. What is a meta-narrative or what is the meta-narrative of the Bible? What does that word mean? Whenever we did our very first week, in fact, Charlie um, McCown actually answered that question, so he's already given it to you if you heard him. Charlie McCown, he's a college student. He's not here tonight, but he was here. Yep. So what is the meta-narrative? Break that word down for me and then we'll get our answer. So what is the meta-narrative? Who wants to take a stab at it? Okay, somebody break that word down for me to two parts. You've got meta and narrative. Let's start with that. What's a narrative? A story. Now, what does meta mean? Big, overarching. So what then is a meta narrative? The big story. Let's just not say A, let's say the. The meta-narrative refers to the overarching story that unifies and connects all sorts of these disparate kind of literature genres. You've got poetry, apocalyptic language or literature, you've got letters, and then you've got just straight-up history. It's going to unify all of those things, those genres and styles, across two millennia. So we're talking over, you know, 2,500 years, essentially. And it demonstrates that the culmination of human history is, in fact, the atoning work of Jesus. That's what the meta-narrative is. And another way to say that is the meta-narrative is the unified story that leads to Jesus. So, one of our core convictions about the Bible is the Bible is a unified story. So when you are reading Leviticus and we are hearing about the sacrificial system and exactly what kind of animals are prescribed for certain sacrifices and what kind of offerings are needed to be given, that leads to and culminates in sacrifices. And that's the only reason we need to read it, right? No, those lead to the sacrifice, the ultimate one of Jesus, right? This is what Rob Plummer, who uh, I've referenced him before, and this is the book that I told y'all, if you want any information about how to read your Bible, for all it's worth, this book is a great one. This is what Rob Plummer says about the meta narrative. He says the meta narrative is the storyline of the Bible that reveals the need for Jesus, the promise of Jesus, the anticipation of Jesus, the incarnation and the arrival of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the promised return of Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus, right? Here's the deal. I know that we would explicitly say, especially in a class like this, you'd be like, yeah, of course it is. But what will happen is tomorrow morning or tomorrow night, you're going to be doing your Bible reading and you're going to be trudging through lamentations and you're going to be like, what does this have to do with Jesus? Right? 
Like who has been there when you're reading something and your main takeaway is, I don't know what this is doing here. I don't know why I need this. Take a big step back and see how this is all part of the unified story and we're gonna take some steps tonight to help build that bridge for us, yeah? So let's talk about that meta-narrative. There are two major divisions. We talked about this whenever we were talking about the organization and formation of the Bible. And with the big divisions we see in the Bible are which two? The Old and the New Testament. Excellent. Let me reframe another way to think about major divisions in the Bible. Just these two uh, categories of promise and fulfillment. If you have no clue what you're supposed to do with this scripture, one of the very first questions you can ask yourself is, is this in a time frame that is speaking about the promise of Jesus, or is this the fulfillment and looking back at the fulfillment of Jesus? If you know just that one piece of information, you've got a leg up already, right? Because now when I'm reading Lamentations and you're hearing Jeremiah speak and cry out about everything that's going on in this huge acrostic poem, then you can say, oh, well, he is looking for some great need to be met and you already know where that great need is ultimately going to be met, in Jesus. That makes things a whole lot easier, right? Whenever we look at Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two, I've referenced this before, just write down the reference. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. John five thirty nine says this, Jesus having a conversation with some of the Pharisees and scribes. He says, you search the scriptures in vain because you think in them you have eternal life. And it's they, these scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. Like, y'all keep going to the Bible and saying, oh, well, this is what God would have us do. And Jesus, the word of God, is going, that, that's about me, man. Right? So the meta-narrative is about Jesus. There's one more. I didn't actually write this down, but it popped into my head as I was speaking. Whenever you look in Ephesians chapter 1, I'll read it for us. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in, let's pick it up in verse 7. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us all, us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The word that gets used there, that uniting it all in him, is it's really, I mean, it, it comes from the word for head, kephale. It's like it, everything is summed up in Jesus. Paul right there is actually talking about redemptive history and the act of God to save his people is all about what Jesus will do. So when you're reading Exodus, and you're reading this narrative, and then there's some law, and then there's some poetry. You've got to know that this is looking forward to Jesus. It's going to explain our need for him and everything that we're supposed to do with that. The Old Testament anticipates the coming kingdom. The gospel accounts announce the kingdom's inauguration. And the remaining New Testament, all the rest of the letters that we have from there, anticipate the kingdom's consummation. Are we in promise or are we in fulfillment? Yeah? That's one big piece for us whenever we get to genre, so I want y'all to just hold on to that. That's the meta-narrative. Any questions about this so far? 
meta narrative, $5 word that just means the big story. Yeah, the big story of scripture is Jesus, right? Sunday school answer here is 100% correct, right? All right, so here is where I want to spend the majority of our time on the next two notes, or next two slides. Let me ask this. What's the purpose of the Bible for you? As a person who has been redeemed by Christ, someone who is a believer in Jesus, what then is the purpose of the Bible? Why do you have that, and what good does it do you? I'm not looking for a specific answer, but whatever you want to say. A guidebook. A guidebook. Okay. In what way, Sue? Okay. I like that. But you can get there. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Somebody else. What then is the purpose of the Bible for us? All right. So reading the scripture brings us to a higher level of um, not just information, but relationship with God. Good. Somebody on this side. Remember, if we make eye contact, you're going to have to say something. It teaches us how life works best, according to the Storybook Bible. The Storybook Bible, by the way, defines God's love for us as, as never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Like, that is a great definition of the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed, his covenantal love. It doesn't give up. It won't fail us. R.O., did you have something you want to throw out there? Reassurance. Reassurance of? Scripture. Fill in the blank, right? I like that. John Jones. Yeah, yeah. So the port in a storm that we're looking for is not any port in a storm. It's God himself. And we learn that God himself can be the port in a storm for us because his word tells us. Okay, give me one more. We learn about the future, right? We know generally what lies ahead, that's for sure. Yeah. Joanne? Okay. Excellent. It teaches us who God is, what he is like, and that we should be like him. That's the critical part right there. Because let me tell you, I don't care how much you know about the Bible or about God. If you don't do what he tells you to do, it's worthless. What you have then done is you have turned Scripture into a trivial matter of just trivia facts. That's what we've done with it. If we actually believe that the story of the gospel, as told in this meta-narrative about who Jesus is and everything leads and it shows our need for him and how he fulfills that, well, then we ought to live by that. Here's how I would say it. Every time, every time, doesn't matter if it's preaching, it doesn't matter if you hear a friend quote a verse over the phone to you, whatever. Every time you encounter God's word, you must apply it to your life. 
We must. Because if we don't, what we will do is we will begin to think of this book only as, well, it's a thing that tells us about relationship, but I'm not actually going to take the steps necessary to grow in my relationship with God. I now know more about God, but I don't really know God. You know the difference in that, right? I know about Barack Obama. Never met the man. Great guy. Never met him, right? Right? That's the, like, I, I don't know Barack Obama. I know a whole bunch of things about him, but I don't know him. Every time we read scripture, that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, Donald Whitney, um, this guy right here, wrote this book. Excellent book for you to read. It's called uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Uh, Donald Whitney is a professor at Southern Seminary, also an Arkansas guy. So you know he's great. This is what he says. Because God wills for you to be a doer of his word, you may be confident that he wants you to be finding an application whenever you come to the scriptures. Every time. Every time. He references James 1.22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, therefore deceiving yourselves. You are like the little kid, my children in particular, Sophie. Go look in the mirror, clean your face off. You got stuff. And then she runs to the bathroom and like she looks over in the mirror and she's like, yep. Yeah. And then she kind of wipes her face and then runs out and it's still on her face. Like literally, that's the example that James gives. If we're going to just read God's word and say, that's excellent, that's awesome, I affirm it, and then you never touch it again and never apply it to your life, you missed it. That's not what we're supposed to do with this. Here's the deal. The largest problem we have with Scripture is not comprehension. It's application. And let me, let me be really clear. Most of us in this room would probably say, if I handed you just a random text in the middle of Isaiah, where you at, Sue? I hand you Isaiah 61, verse 1, and say, hey, explain that to me. Most of us would kind of start feeling like, oh, no. Because the fear that we have is, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what that means. Here's my inkling. I think I've got evidence to support this. I'm willing to bet most of us could actually articulate what that verse was about. Because we do comprehend what we're reading. The problem is, we either A, are unwilling, or B, are unable to apply it to our life. That's the problem. Word? Does anyone want to agree or disagree with me there? Because I could come up with some examples that we can talk about the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, and we can go super deep, but you could probably also, on first reading, tell me what that was about. And then I would say, okay, what are you supposed to do with it? And you'd be like, well, I don't know. Our problem is not with comprehension, it's application. So what we are going to do is spend the rest of the night kind of working through some of that stuff, okay? So here's the first thing that I want us to see. Not all commands expressed in the scripture are expected to be, be followed precisely as the text reads. And I, I want to explain what I mean by that. I just told you that we are to encounter the word of God and then immediately apply it in however we can. And then I told you that our problem is not comprehension, it's actually application. And then I tell you, but yeah, there are times that you don't actually do exactly what the scriptures say. I'm not speaking out of both sides of my mouth, I promise you. All right, and I can illustrate that here in just a second. Um, here's one thing that I do want to say in expressing that. 
One of the things that helps us understand whether we are supposed to follow precisely as the text reads would be asking this question. Has this commandment been fulfilled by Christ? Has this command been fulfilled by Christ? Uh, Charlie, when's the last time you sacrificed a bull at the altar at uh, the temple in Jerusalem? Oh, you haven't? Gotcha. Uh, Mike, turtle doves, when's the last time you offered one of them dudes in an offering? Well, then you two clearly are not living out what the scriptures say. Because I can run the text that tell you precisely, you, on this day, this way, bring this thing to this place. It's been fulfilled by Christ. Are you tracking with that? So whenever I say that, yeah, we don't have to actually follow precisely as the words read on the page, you might go, whoa. But then I'll tell you about your sacrifices, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, because we already have a sacrifice. Yeah? Let me give you another example. Not only do we need to see if that command has been fulfilled by Christ, we've got to discern if those commands were issued in a specific historical context that made sense to the immediate audience that doesn't apply to us today. We're going to spend a lot of time on that later on, so just hold on to it, okay? There are certain things that historically and culturally, they don't apply now. And we're going to explain one that I think you're going to love because we're going to practice it at the end of the night. Okay. All right. So here's the deal. All that being said, a text may not have an obvious immediate application, but an application does exist. If God has in fact written down the words of life for us that is supposed to govern how we operate and live as believers, and he intends to communicate truth to us, he didn't intend to communicate that to us idly for us to do nothing with it. This is a phrase I used on the first week. I'll say it again. All scripture is equally inspired, but not all scripture is equally applicable in every circumstance. It just isn't. And it's perfectly fine to admit that, right? There might be stuff in Philippians that are incredibly encouraging that may not come or that's going to come up a little more frequently than us hanging out in the middle of First Chronicles. Yeah, and that's fine. But we have to go into this process anticipating that God is going to say something to us that we are to respond to. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. Now, we're going to get into the meat and potatoes. There's going to be a lot of stuff I'm going to say here that's not on the slides because I didn't want it to be super long, but take notes. Last week, we talked about the process of of interpretation, and I laid out this little four-step process that we prayerfully prepare whenever we come to the Word of God. And as we are reading, we make good observations. Those good observations then need to be turned into right interpretations which then need to be cast into legitimate applications, okay? Everything I'm going to say is assuming this is happening. So if we went wrong on one of those first three steps, then yeah, our, our application might be a little goofy, yeah? If you start reading an auto repair manual for a Chevy and you're working on a Ford, yeah, you might be able to garner some insight, but when you start looking at the, the bolt pattern and you're like, this doesn't match, of course it doesn't, you made the wrong observation. You didn't interpret what you were reading rightly, yeah? So, here's what I want to do. I want to give us three principles on how to apply the Bible, okay? I'm going to have three basic notes up here, and I'm going to have some other stuff for you to write down. Um, Yeah, let's just throw the first one up there. 
commands are not the only texts that demand obedience or application. Here's what I mean by that. Um, this is actually from Doriani, another guy. Daniel Doriani writes this. He says, in applying the Bible, we must expect to find applications in all kinds of scriptures, not just commandments. So, let me give us a list of things. I've got seven areas, seven places in scripture that are not commands that demand our obedience or us applying it to our lives. Okay, here's area number one. Laws or rules. Laws or rules. Think about um, those things that were prescribed to Israel that was about their daily life, how they were supposed to arrange the camp in numbers. Those are rules. Now, do we immediately apply um, how we physically build our house so that it mirrors that construction? Like, no, 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 I think that would be the wrong interpretation. I think the right interpretation was to see God's order and design for having the, the tent of meeting in the middle, and then you have the Levites surrounding them, uh, the tent of meeting, and then you have the camp in these directions out from there. Like, there's general principles that we get from that that we then apply in different ways. But let me give us an example. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 29, Exodus 21, 29, a law for daily life. This is what Moses writes. He's speaking about a man who has an ox who keeps killing people. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and, it, and its owners have been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. And we read that and go, well, that's not a command. I don't have to do it. But then we might also go, I don't own a farm. I don't have an ox, so I don't even have to read that scripture, yes? Is that the right lesson to take away from this? It has nothing to do with me. I don't have ox. I don't have oxen. Moose, moosen, right? I don't have any ox. Well, what's the point for us today from that? Well, guy, if you've got you know, equipment that people are using all the time, or you're driving around in the snow and in the rain with bald tires and people have told you over and over, guy, you're going to hurt yourself or someone else. Who's responsible for that? So don't you see how that applies to this situation, even though I don't have a farm? Yeah. Number one, rules and laws. Number two, ideals or principles. Now we're really getting into it. These are wide-ranging sets of behavior that don't actually have specific deeds attached to it. Yet, we are supposed to be obedient to it and apply it to our lives. Here's a great example. Matthew 6.33, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. What he's referenced, what he's already talked about. What is the specific task or deed that's expected of us? There isn't one. But yet, when you read that, you know implicitly somehow I need to be seeking God's kingdom. And that might look different than how Bradley does it, which might look different than how anyone else might do it, but it still applies equally. And it's not a command in that same sense. Yes? So, laws or rules, ideals and principles. Here's number three. Actions in narratives, which is what we're going to be talking about next week a lot. In narratives, there are all sorts of behaviors that you are meant to emulate and a whole bunch that you're not meant to emulate. Guess what? The author doesn't always come out and say, hey, by the way, this guy did that. You shouldn't do that. The way they're going to teach you that is they're going to show you the rest of the story and how badly it goes for this dude. And then as the reader, we look at that and go, oh, don't do that thing, 
right? If you, uh, if you ever watched The Office, Dwight Schrute has a great quote. Whenever I think about doing a thing, I think, would a stupid person do that? And if a stupid person would do that thing, I don't do that thing, right? You can observe, it didn't work out so hot for that dude, I'm not gonna do that. Cool, that is demanding obedience, even though it's not in the form of a command, yeah? Am I beating this horse sufficiently? Say again. I would give, so this is one that I didn't list one specifically just because there's so many, but here, let me ask you this. How many times in scripture do we see men marry more than one woman in a narrative? Just ballpark it. Once or twice. Okay, cool. Let's go with that. At least once or twice. How many times does that work out well for that dude? It never does. Right? It never does. So go find your favorite scripture about David and any one of his wives and then go towards the end of, of his narrative and you see that the sword's not going to depart from his house because of his failures in many ways, right? So there's all sorts of examples there. All right, let me give us another one. Biblical symbols and images. There's all sorts of symbolic imagery and that kind of stuff that's laden in scripture that is meant to teach us. It is didactic. Symbols and images. Symbols are just concrete examples of something that represents an abstract thing. Write this down. This is Proverbs 26, 13 through 15. Proverbs 26, 13 through 15 says this. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. Whenever you have those two verses come back to back, that's what we talked about earlier, uh, Sue. So, <clears throat> there's a sluggard that says there's a line in the road, there's a line in the streets. Verse 14. And as the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and it wears him out to bring it out to his mouth. So what generally is what uh, this passage talking about? What are we describing here? Someone who is so lazy that they would rather sleep so much that they are so lazy that whenever they go to eat, they put their hand in the food and they're like, ah, I just can't do it, right? He's that lazy. Now apply that to the lion. What can we infer that the lazy person is going to do with that lion? Absolutely nothing. The dude can't even be bothered to put his hand to his mouth to eat. You think he's gonna put in the effort to get away from this lion? No. But when we read that, like there's no command there so it doesn't apply to us. Come on, right? Am I beating this horse sufficiently? I got two more to beat with, three more. Doctrines, there are doctrines that we are meant to apply and then be obedient to. These are central tenets of our faith that inform how we act. When God in Genesis one and two creates humanity in his image, the inference there is that every person is created with, as an image of God and therefore we owe every single person dignity, period. But that's not a command. I don't have to do that. Come on now. Come on. Like You know this to be true. Just because it's not a command doesn't mean we don't have to follow it. Number six, divine promises. Whenever we run across divine promises, these are promises that show us how God will reward those deeds that he finds honorable and um, he'll give a blessing as a result. Go read Deuteronomy 27 through 30, and you'll see this list of blessings and curses. God has promised to bless right action and punish evil action. Yeah? Here's the last one. Songs and prayers. 
Think about the Psalms. The Psalms are divinely sanctioned examples of us to follow in worship, which is one reason why we've been reading Psalms on Sunday morning, giving us an example of, hey, if you don't have the words on how to worship, just stick your finger anywhere in the Psalms, that'll do. Because God has ordained that this is something for you to give voice to and to celebrate who he is in 150 different versions, right? 150 different ways in which we can turn back praise to God. Tracking with that? Yeah? So, there it is. Not everything that we read in Scripture is a command, yet, whenever we encounter Scripture, we're meant to apply it to our lives. Here's the second principle. Sometimes the application today is exactly the same as it was when it was written. Coveting is the exact same thing for us as it was for Paul, as it was for Moses when he wrote it down. Yes, whenever the Ten Commandments say, don't murder, I mean, what kind of mental gymnastics do we have to jump through to try to justify that? Like, you don't do it, right? Sometimes it is as simple as that. Cool? End of point. Here's the third one. This is the one that I think a lot of times we get hung up on. <clears throat> one, we need to see that commands are not the only types of texts that demand obedience. Number two, once we know from that list, hey, I probably should just do the exact same thing they did. I see in this historical narrative, this type of action warrants God blessing. So I'm going to do that. Do it the exact same way, right? Here's our third one. In those times when it's hard to apply something from a different historical context or a cultural setting, what we do is we identify a timeless principle, lift that thing out, and then you apply it to our circumstances today. Okay? This is the one that we're going to spend some time on that I referenced earlier. So here's what I want us to do. I need two people over here. Somebody raise your hands. I need two people. Raise your hands. Paul, I want you to read Romans 16, 16. Chad, I want you to read Rome, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 16, 20. I need two people over here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, Joanne, and then somebody else. I need one more. Um, 1 Peter 5, 14. 1 Peter 5, 14. All right, hit me with that Romans 16, 16, Paul. Greet each other with the holy kiss. Ah, okay, we're going to deal with that. But surely that's not the only place this is found. Uh, Chad, what you got there with 1 Corinthians? All, all brethren, greet, greet one another with the holy kiss. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. All right, so 2 Corinthians. What we got for 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 13.12. Is that what I said? 13.12, yes, ma'am. Oh, man. Three for three. First Peter, five. Surely, that's not what Peter says, too. That's fine. Rock on. Is that First Corinthians? I'm sorry, First Peter 5, 14? Oh, man, we almost made it. If we had one instance of this, we could just brush that off, right? Well, no, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. But here we got four of these. So how many of us want to say that we are obstinately being defiant to the Word of God because we don't kiss each other on the face in here? 
Because that's precisely what Paul says three times, and then Peter says it. Okay, didn't have COVID, right? They didn't understand germ theory, yeah? Okay, so what do we do now? If, if my whole thing is saying that we have to interpret, and then we run across something like that, and we're just like, yeah, but I'm, mm, I'm not doing that. This is not us sidestepping. This is us recognizing that there are timeless principles. I'm going to give you four steps, and this all fits under that third point. Four basic steps. Number one, again, we're keeping in mind prayerfully preparing, making good observations, right interpretation, and then we're going to have legitimate applications. Okay, here's our first step. One, determine the original meaning of the text. Paul, do you happen to know what's going on in uh, Romans 16? Just scan through there and what do you see a whole lot of? A whole bunch of people. He's greeting this church in Rome and is like, hey, I know this person. They know this person. They know you. All of them greet you. When you go look in 1 Corinthians, same thing. Look in 2 Corinthians, same thing. When you look at 1 Peter 5, verse 14. 14? Yeah, the one right, uh, verse 13 and 14. That's about the churches greeting one another. Okay, so when we apply everything we learned from last week of how to actually make good observations and right interpretations, what are these texts about? Generally speaking, what are they about? Say again? Greeting people. Okay. So then we can infer from that that the way they greeted each other was with a holy kiss. Love and acceptance. Excellent. Step number two, find the principle. What is the principle that's being taught in all of those texts that we just referenced? Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Peter 5. Those sections, what's the principle that we're supposed to have from those texts? Somebody shout it out to me. Huh? Love. Love whom? And what are you supposed to do with that love? Just love them? And that's it? That's enough? Show them you love them. So, I'm going I'm to need everybody on this side to stand up. Y'all going to form a line over here. Everyone over here is going to form a line. Y'all going to meet in the middle, and we're just going to gonna kiss. We're going to make the round, yeah? Right? No. No. Why not? Because that's not culturally appropriate for us. The principle is for us to love one another and show each other that we love each other. So the third step is apply that principle into our context. When might we be expected to greet one another? Give me an example of when we might meet. Say, oh, today. Sunday morning. Sunday morning. When we come into church. Yeah? And so what do we do? Was that a flawed principle Yeah, the third step is to apply the principle into a similar situation today. So for us, whenever we meet at church, what is the most culturally appropriate greeting for people today in our context? And when you do, you look them in the eye, right? Now... If I leaned in and snatched somebody close to me and gave them a kiss on the cheek, we'd be like, whoa, right? That's assault, brother. So that's not appropriate. But in some contexts, if you're at First Baptist Lebanon, what might be the culturally appropriate thing that people do there? They might hug. 
I told Anthony this story that when I was a Christian uh, and I first started going to the BCM, I had a hard time, like, something's wrong with this place and these dudes. Like, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but, like, after about three or four months, it dawned on me, like, oh, they're, like, hugging each other. Just, I'd never been in a place where that was, like, happening all the time. So then I started hugging people. Like, hey, I didn't die, right? But here's the deal. You can take that timeless principle of us needing to greet each other with affection and, and acceptance and this warm greeting and then do it. And here's the fourth step. We need to test our conclusions. And the way you test it is you compare your conclusion to similar texts or situations in the Bible. Do you think, R.O., if I gave you a homework assignment tonight that tomorrow you had to come with at least two verses that told Christians that we are to be uh, affectionate towards one another and love each other, do you think you could do that? Think you could? Because I think the answer to that is, yeah. I kissed Mr. Parker over to the Houston Perfect. There we go. So Sue's going above and beyond all you jokers. I don't know what y'all are doing, right? But here's the point. You take that and you can deduce from Scripture that Christians are meant to affectionately greet one another. How do I show affection to Leanne? Chad, I don't know if you want me greeting her with a holy kiss, but like a good solid high five, I'll take that. Yeah. College students, that's what I did. High fives. Everybody gets high fives. If you ever wonder why I give little kids high fives, it's the same reason. Like, like hey, it's just right there. Plus, I can yank it back from when it's hilarious, right? Now, that's the last one I didn't Compare your conclusion to similar texts or situations in the Bible. And if you see them doing something similar, hey, guess what? Bob's your uncle. You got it. So, right preparation and prayer leads to good observations and interpretations, which we then legitimately apply. And that all these things that we set up there, how do we go through that process of application? Look for places where you need to apply or be obedient. Sometimes it's really easy. Sometimes it's not. And when it's not, boom, I just gave you four steps. Word, a whole lot easier than you think. Yeah? So let's talk about genre real quick. This is probably going to be my favorite thing to do tonight. Um, yeah. Hopefully y'all can make out some of this stuff. This is fairly famous for Americans. You should know it. What is this? Snakes. Not snakes. That's an octopus. Like, what, but what is this thing you're looking at? What is it? It's cracking. Okay, like think about not what is on the picture. What is this thing? That's Standard Oil Company. And over on the left-hand side, you've got the Capitol building. On the right-hand side, you've got the State House. The White House is in the bottom left, and you've got all these industries like steel and oil and rubber. What is this? Somebody said it. It's a political cartoon. Yes? Now that I tell you that's a political cartoon, you're like, yes, it is. Of course it is. Now, what is this? This also is a cartoon, but what kind of cartoon is this? It's sarcastic. This is a comic strip. This is the far side. The Midvale School for the Gifted and the dude's like leaning on the door when it says pool, right? 
It's humorous. Now, let's compare these two things. Where are you going to find both of these pieces of literature, as it were? In a newspaper. And you would read them precisely the same way, wouldn't you? They've got the same color scheme. They've got the same kind of art style. Literally, those are the same thing, yes? And every one of us in here are like, no, I wouldn't do that. And of course you wouldn't, because you are an adult with a functioning brain, right? Here's my point. Every time we come to Scripture, you do the exact same thing. You come to Scripture and you immediately start making some decisions about what kind of language you can anticipate to run into. Yeah? So, here's where we get into genres. Knowing the genre is the first aid that we have in making good observations. Let me illustrate that. Once upon a time, what then jumps into your head? What kind of language do you expect to hear? It's a fairy tale. What kind of characters do you think are going to be in this fairy tale, possibly? Princesses, witches, wizards, magic, right? You see that. You know instantly that's the genre we're dealing with. And you adjust your expectations because you're not ready to hear about, you know, Alexander the Great crossing the Hadapses River in 330 B.C., right? Of course that's not going to show up in there because that's not the same kind of literature. So your expectations are already geared a certain way. Here is what I mean by genre. A genre is a category of artistic, musical, or literary composition. Literature is really what we're worried about here. Composition, meaning writing or construction, characterized by a particular style, form, or content. That is what I mean by genre. Incidentally, Paul, you mind helping me out? I'm going to give you these. This is some sample texts of different, uh, you mind passing these out for us? Of different genres in scripture. There are more. There are subgenres for each. But here is where we are going to spend the rest of the semester. We're going to take one genre and we're going to beat that horse until it is sufficiently dead. Yes? Because the more we know about how to approach a text like that, the more readily we're going to be able to get more out of it, making good observations, right interpretations, and then legitimate inter uh, applications into our life. That's the goal. Okay? So, thanks, sir. So here's what I want to say. Not all books of the Bible fall into a single genre with no intermixing. Whenever you look in the book of Exodus, what kind of stories do we see in Exodus? I've even kind of given the game away right there. What kind of stories? It's a historical accounting, right? This happened, then that happened, this action spurred this next thing. And you would say, that's all Exodus is about. And the answer to that would be, wrong. Exodus 14, Israel crosses the Red Sea. Exodus 15, do you need some more? Exodus 15 is a song. You do need some more. Exodus 15 is a song. It's called the Song of Moses. And whenever you have a song, what kind of literature and what kind of language should you anticipate when you read a song and literally its lyrics? What kind of language? Poetic language. Should you expect to see poetic language on every paragraph in a historical narrative? No. So you read them differently. So not every single book falls into one neat category, and each genre is read differently. Word? You don't read 
the political cartoon the same way you read the far side with the kid leaning up against the door. You have different expectations. You read it differently. You know what to do with it. That's the goal for the rest of the semester. Yeah? Okay, here's the last thing I want to say. And this is the one that's kind of a big deal for us. And I just want you to chew on this for a bit. I can get you afterwards. We're running out of time. The process of interpreting scripture and then applying it is meant to be done in community. You get that, right? However, how is it that most of us interact with the Bible on a daily basis? Say again? Individually. I am reading in my favorite chair with my favorite coffee or whatever, and you read and you interact with it, and that's where it stops. Let me tell you this. Personal Bibles are a relatively recent human invention. 1486, I think is what we said about the Gutenberg um, printing presses when it was um, invented. So prior to that, we didn't have mass options for us to have our own Bible. We had to go somewhere in a group and hear it read. John, you had a comment? Right, so I mean, but my point is, that's even proving my point even more, that instead of 1486, we're talking 1750, right? Just call it that. So we're talking 300 years of where that's actually normative. Prior to that, communal reading was the primary way that people got the Bible in them for centuries. Here's just a simple question. What do we lose whenever we don't read the Bible in community and letting people interpret with us and then apply it to each other's lives? What do we miss? John? Okay, so we're very biased in how we would interpret what we're reading and then applying it to myself, yeah? And if you're doing that in community, that may not happen. Sue? Accountability. Accountability. Hey dog, you heard what I read. And you know that's going on in your life. Like, can I help you with that? Nah. <laughs> Bro, you don't have that option whenever you're in community and you're doing this together. And that's a good thing. What else do we give up whenever we make it very individualistic as opposed to communal? Accountability. Accountability. What else? Extra understanding. Y'all do realize at least two or three times a week, I go into Anthony's office and I'll have either a verse or something that I'm going to bring to him and say, hey, what do you think about this? I do that for multiple reasons. One, he knows more than I do. Two, he sees more than I do. There's two of us now. Yeah. And three, he's my pastor. I want him to be able to say, ah, you're off there, guy. Fix it. Here's how you need to do that. But yet... So often we want to take our own reading and it just becomes like this, um, not selfish in like a, an overtly sinful way, but like it becomes centered on what it meant to me and we miss out on others being able to speak truth into our lives. Yeah? So if it's true that every time we read the Bible, we are supposed to get something from it that we were supposed to be obedient to or apply to our lives, that also goes communally. The church. Incidentally, on Sunday mornings when we are preaching, that is the culmination of worship, whenever we hear from God's Word, right? 
Because as we are hearing from this authority that we can now have every one of us heard it, and we are all now accountable to doing the thing that we all heard, that's how we are doing this in community. Yeah? All right. I still have not hit my 15-minute mark of having Q&A time. Hey, that's why we got it recorded, Sue. I've told you this every week. I will help you out. What questions do we have about the meta-narrative, about applying Scripture to our lives, and about uh, communal reading? What do we have there? Questions, comments, concerns, gripes, and complaints. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So you brought it up. Let's explore that. So the comment was whenever we read the scriptures together communally and we're centered around the word, right, the words of life, there is something that invites the spirit in. Why is that, you think? Why does that happen? Because I saw several of you kind of nodding along. Cool, so we agree. Let's talk about that. Why is that the case? God said it would be. Do you know what that text is about or where that's found? It's in Matthew 18. And really what that text is about is in discipline within the church. And so really what he's saying there is that um, whenever y'all have come and decided that there is something that needs action taken on it because of behavior, that what you all have agreed upon amongst yourselves, I'm there with you. Now, my point there is, that is a point to be made from that text, but you are absolutely right. God does promise to inhabit, uh, inhabit his people and his creation through his spirit. And why would that not be centrally located when we are discussing the very things he told us to do? Because who wrote the Bible, Sue? God and man. We're reading his book, right? Why else might it be that we have this extra spiritual sense of what's going on around us whenever we're surrounded ourselves with the Bible? Rich? But whenever I'm reading my Bible by myself, I've got the only person I'm really thinking about tangibly around me. But when I've got multiple people around me, my mind immediately jumps to, I'm sure this person is struggling with this because I know what's going on in their life. This text said X, Y, or Z. Let me go encourage them with it. So your mind naturally comes to that because guess what? That's how God designed life to work. It is not good for man to be alone, right? That's not just so that we can have more babies. It's not just because that. It's also because it is good to be in community in the way that God has designed life to work. But when we isolate ourselves, we get problems, especially when we isolate ourselves and trying to understand Scripture. Other comments, questions, or complaints? I would pray. I would pray so. Yeah. And I think that's good. Mm-hmm. No, and that, Incidentally, there's a reason why we do that on Sunday morning. We get people in smaller groups to center around the Word and encourage each other with, with it. Regardless of what the material is that they're working through, whether it's small group discussion questions, a quarterly, or somebody's Bible study that they are just working through a text, we're centered on the Word and then having conversation around it. Yeah? 
Other questions? I got four minutes. We got plenty of time. Paige. Comment. Comment. Um, I feel like I hear frequently when talking about sexuality, it's like kids at the time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that a lot to do with whether um, sexuality, mm-hmm. yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so let's just express it as a statement. It is difficult to read scripture that is making demands on our lives when everything around us in the world is making counter demands. So, I think that's a fair way to put it, yes? We just have to make a decision. Are you going to stand on the word of God or are you not? Whenever I started teaching at the BCM, um, with college students, we, we didn't avoid hard topics. We talked about suicide from the stage. We talked about mental health. We talked about pornography. We talked about premarital sex. We talked about all that stuff. And you know what I was told by some pastors in the area? Hey, man, don't record that. Because if you record that, people are going to know, and they're going to be able to use that later. And I get where they were coming from. Like, I legitimately get their concern for me. And my response is but I'm gonna live that way and I think you should too. So why would I not? I want, like, I'm not scared of that truth. Whenever we come down to those promises that God made, right, whenever that list of seven things that are areas in scripture that aren't a command but we're expected to uh, accord our life with it, one of those things is promises. And I didn't read the note, I cut it out just for the sake of time, but I'll say it here. Promises that God gives, that he is going to reward and bless, that doesn't mean that it's going to come easy or that it's going to come hassle-free. In fact, most times it's through difficulty that God blesses it. In your obedience, through the difficulty. Yes? And he still promises. Revelation 2, 9 through 11. I think it's the church at Sardis. Let me read it. Revelation 2. <clears throat> Smyrna, sorry. Let's pick it up in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Who are we talking about there? Jesus, because this is a unified story. But, you know, Revelation ain't got nothing to do with Jesus. Of course it does. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and that they are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Don't fear. Because everything's going to be great. No. He says, don't fear what you are about to suffer. It's coming. That verse goes on. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. And we're like, okay, great. Where's the promise? Next statement. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Okay, but when do I get that crown of life? When? After you die. The promise is still the same. The promise is still the same. You will suffer. There's going to be tribulation. Some of y'all are going to get thrown in the clink. It's not going to go well for a lot of you. So what I need you to do is pad your income. Make sure you got a good retirement. Make sure you get your family and all your other affairs in order so you can be comfortable when that happens. No. What does he say? Keep doing what I told you until you die. And then I give you the crown of life. That doesn't change the fact that that promise is glorious and it is for our good. 
just because everything around us is rough. Okay, yeah, let's square with that and let's know precisely. Somebody's getting tickets out there. Um, every time I see that flash, I'm like, ooh, it's 50 bucks, whatever. Um, how much? Mine wasn't that much. How do you know? There's some good levity right there. You heard from a friend, right? Yeah, that's what I hear. That's what I hear. Uh, so yeah, is it going to be rough to hold to the principles that Scripture tells us? Absolutely. But I'll tell you this. I will gladly, I'll write you a personal pass when you show me in Scripture where it's okay for us to punt on those responsibilities. You find that, then I'll write you a pass personally. I'll sign it in blood. I'll have at it. But I'm confident we're not going to find that either. Be faithful unto death is what we're going to see more times than not. And incidentally, maybe that's a good reason why we ought to read this in community. Yeah? 7.32. We're over. All of us are going to rush out of here and all go get tickets at the light. Yeah? All right. Let me pray for us. If you've got questions or if you need to come get some more notes, I got you. Come right on up here and we'll be good to go. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have given us everything for life and godliness and that this is contained in your word for us through your spirit that has been superintending the process of authorship all the way to transmission and translation to where we get it today and that we can comprehend what it is that you have, applied, or what you have written for us and that we just need to apply it to our lives. Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to help us apply this rightly wherever we encounter your word so that we might bring honor to your name and that we might be edified. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Real quick, before we go, next week, we're looking at narrative, historical narrative genre. We're going to talk about characteristics of the genre. We're going to talk about prescriptive versus descriptive texts. We're going to look at guidelines on how to interpret it. And then we're going to look at Ruth. Ruth is going to be our example. So if you want to get some reading ahead, and I'll give you bonus points, read Ruth this week. Yeah? Word.